Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 478. And I'm joined today by someone I was very excited to talk to. Someone who I've <laughs> I've met once and it was t- 10 years ago. And I felt we really got on well and we've kind of kept in touch. But it's mad that it's taken us 10 years to sit down and have a proper chat. So um, yeah, I'm joined today by Jim Bob from Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine an iconic band of that uh, kind of early 90s, mid-90s era in uh, in UK uh, music. And also a wonderful writer and generally great bloke. Jim Bob was someone, I did a tweet a few weeks back asking who people would like to hear on the pod. And Jim Bob was one of the people r- requested there. 90% of those, or no, let's say, 40% of those are people that I'm either not aware of or I don't think are a good fit for the podcast, so I awkwardly don't respond to. Another, no, I'd say 50% are guests I've already had on, and I reply saying, good news, I've already had them on, so you can listen to them now. Enjoy. Um, and 10% is people I'd love to have on and uh, and respond to. No, actually 5% of that and f- 5% are people I've not got a chance of getting on or I've got no contact for or whatever else. So um, that's the split of those tweets and Instagram posts. It's why I don't do them very often because, as I said, most of my time is spent going, good news, (laughs) they've already been on and you can enjoy listening to it right now. Enjoy. Um, Anyway, speaking of enjoying, I'll get on with this bloody podcast so you can enjoy we're brought to you as ever by speechdevelopmentrecords.com really brief thing here in response to the shit times we're in i've reduced almost everything on the website so everything on the website is cheaper except for a couple of things that we've only just ordered and can't afford to cut the price down on i did a video about it explaining it all explaining the reason explaining the reason for the price that we came to that we can reduce things by this isn't a temporary sale this is the permanent price of all of these things until we sell out of them so head over to speechdevelopmentrecords.com if there was something you wanted to buy but were holding off until it was cheaper because it's it's cheaper now but in reality none of it's important there's far more important things going on at the moment that you probably need to spend your money on. But um, yeah, if you did want to get anything over there, the bulk of it is cheaper. We're also brought to you by patreon.com forward slash Scroobius Pip, where you can just throw in a dollar a month to help pay for this podcast, to help buy, let's go with Muesli for Buddy Peace. Um, I pay him in Muesli and stuff like that. Uh, and you can also catch me over on Twitch. You lot know twitch is the thing i'm probably enjoying the most at the moment publicly that sounded really ominous publicly privately there's a lot of things i'm enjoying um but publicly the thing i'm enjoying the most at the moment is twitch head over there twitch.tv forward slash scroobius pipio i'm on a lot man and i put everything together like the vod's the on-demand stuff. I put loads of it together in little series. So if you look over at the collections, like you can catch up on specific series I'm doing over there. That's about it, isn't it? Uh, let's get on with the podcast. As said, I was delighted to talk to Jim Bob and we had a really good chat. He's so open and honest and he, he shone a lot of lights on stuff I wasn't uh, too aware of. And he's just good to talk to. So um, I hope you enjoy this. This is episode 478 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Jim Bob. 
I'm here today with Jim Bob. How are you, sir? Uh, good. A bit bunged up. A bit <laughs> bunged up. It's that time of year, isn't it? It's as if it, it is, turns yeah. October 1st and yeah. the weather, our health, everything goes right. No, it's uh, it's uh, autumn. Bunged now. up in the nose, by the way, not bunged up elsewhere. <laughs> could, be, could be a different kind of bunged up, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it very much could. How How... Do you? I was thinking this before we got started. Do you get affected much by all the all the bullshit in the world these days? I personally find I used to get affected a lot more. I think I've got a a quicker shut off, switch off from everything in my head. But obviously, living in the UK at the moment, there's a lot of nonsense going on. Yeah. How does that? Yeah. How does that hit you? I'd say I think I. I mean, everything bothers me. Probably. Yeah. Similar things that always bothered me, but maybe they bothered me for a shorter period of time. Yeah. I find it easier to kind of move on. Yeah. You know, I'm I don't exactly sort of, the same. I'm not consumed by anger. Yeah. I think you hit a an automatic c- cut off earlier for your own sanity, for your own mental health, all yeah. these things as you get a bit older, because it is just, it's relentless. It really is. Yeah. Especially if you're obviously if you're on, I mean, it's mostly social media, isn't it? I think if yeah. you were, I think. Personally, if I wasn't on social media, I think I probably just wouldn't know what was going on. Yeah, 100%. I agree so much, and it's such a double-edged sword because I'm not a fan of, of social media anymore in general, but I do worry that I need a little bit of that constant anger because there's a lot to constantly be angry about, and I completely agree. If I wasn't on there, I'd probably <laughs> just be at home watching films and that and going, everything's all right, isn't it? The world's okay, isn't it? It's not yeah. too bad. I think I'd miss completely out on all the... The stuff I should be getting angry about. Yeah, I, I've somebody actually pulled me up on it um, quite late last night on Twitter. That I that why wasn't I saying anything about the about right. the Tories and stuff? Yeah, and that I was uh, I was kind of I was self obsessed, just constantly talking about you know my records and my tour and stuff. Yeah, and so I thought I, it bothered me more than it because people don't tend to have a go at me on on Twitter. Yeah, so. Uh, it's kind of it was sort of unusual, um, and so I sort of just looked back at what I'd said recently, and it was just basically I'm in the studio yeah. <laughs> recording vocals today, uh, tours tours on sale. That is pretty much and the occasional joke. But then I thought, you know, do do we need more people saying the same thing? Well, that's exactly it. I genuinely think I've had that that once or twice, and my response is always, look, I've written a few political songs over the years. I've certainly had loads of rants on social media. Nothing's changed. I've got nothing to add to add, yeah. add to that. You should know yeah. from my previous yeah. um, back catalogue or or tweets or whatever else that yeah, I think they're a bunch of cunts. But there's no benefit of me adding my voice to those who are articulating it better or getting yeah, actual fa- facts and stats across and all these other things. Yeah. S- sometimes, yeah, I do need to just say fuck the Tories. But in general, yeah. I know that's not adding much. That's just purely that's as self centred in a way. And also because you, know. you are in like your own bubble, presumably vast amount. Most people who are like following your tweets, say for example, are probably like in agreement anyway. So what's yeah. the? You know, I remember when I was like when I was sort of a teen, when I was a teenager, and I was signing on, and I was there at the Dole, and um, and they used to sell the Socialist Worker outside, and for some reason at that time it always used to irritate me because I felt that they were like 
so selling it in the wrong place yeah <laughs> kind of thing you know sort of i don't know it always sort of bothered me that they yeah. should be they should be selling it outside conservative party head, headquarters I, or something i always remember me and um and dan lasac had a song on our first album that was kind of about how stagnant uk hip-hop had become and it wasn't really having a go it was just saying look y- y- you can do a lot more and we got a gig supporting a L- lethal bezel at one of his his album launches and he was like peak uk hip-hop at that time and i really enjoyed his stuff so it was a good gig but we ummed a nerd and we're like no we have to play it to this crowd because it's bullshit that we've been playing it to all our little hipsters at yeah. our gigs and now we're in front of <laughs> yeah. uk hip-hop fans the, the the members of the of the community the the rappers it'd be stupid it'd be bullshit to, 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 to not play it here and we played it and it got a very mixed reaction it was l- literally it was weird where people were stood because literally half the room w- was enjoying it and the other half was standing there like, fuck off, mate. But again, <laughs> it felt important because exactly as you say, it's so easy to just go, I'm going to play it over here and they're all going to go, yeah, similarly, I'm going to yeah. tell the socialist um, <laughs> to, outside the, the job seeker's place and all that and not fucking to show the people on the other side who, who need to hear about it. So yeah, I get that. It's a weird balance, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's weird. All of social media is weird. I, I've got no answers. <laughs> no. I mean, we should just leave it, shouldn't we, obviously? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's that's the problem. I'm, I worry about moaning about it too much on here when I'm on it still. Yeah. So I can't – I've got no r- right to keep saying it shit. Just leave, and I haven't, so it's on me. But uh, social media aside, there's loads I want to talk to you about, but I thought a good place to start would be kind of how we met. Because we both did, about t- 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 10 years ago now, we both did a six music, like it was a round table thing. And I always feel cautious accepting those things because, and they're not, it's like this isn't a criticism of them or any of the people who organise it. I always feel I'm kind of meant to come on and sl- slag songs off and be yeah. edgy and be yeah. and be nasty and I don't like that. I'd rather talk about the songs I'm into and leave the ones I'm not into. Because, again, particularly as like, we talked about a reach of leave social media, as now a 40-year-old man, a lot of the new pop music isn't for me. <laughs> so I don't want to be grumpy old man on the radio going, this isn't as good as, as the <laughs> songs I used like. And I just felt that we proper... I was really pleased to meet you there and we kind of felt like we were in a similar mindset and uh and position yeah i mean i was i was on it last week or the week before funnily yeah. enough i hadn't been on it for ages and i kind of feel i found myself just doing it for laughs yeah and sort of <laughs> I, it wasn't my plan i just thought i'll just be nice about everyone yeah. but then i that's boring isn't it so yeah. i find sort of it's better to just almost kind of ignore the songs <laughs> and the yeah. records yeah and just just sort of generally generally take the piss and, and hopefully and basically entertain yeah, because otherwise it's you know it's people just saying oh it's not my cup of tea or or talking about the drum sound or something. It's it's you know it's a potentially an incredibly boring show, isn't it? Yeah, it can get <laughs> proper into itself. And I always again, I think that's part as well. I've always felt like an absolute fraud in music because all I do is speak lyrics, and it was always the people I worked with who knew all the insides and outs of drum sounds and all this kind of thing. So I'm always going. Yeah, it sounds all right. <laughs> yeah, I'm still. <laughs> nice honest, I'm still a bit like that, to be honest with you. So I've yeah. been, I've, I mean, I've been recording uh, 
recording some new stuff lately. Yeah. And uh, I've had p- a couple of people come in, like somebody came in and played trumpet and sax, and we had somebody come in and play violin. And as soon as they ask a question about, you know, sixths or sevenths or something, <laughs> or yeah. a, some sort of chord change, and I'm totally lost, you know. <laughs> sort of. I love it. I, I always remember b- bumping into to Mark Ronson at a festival and we'd supported him early days and he was headlining this festival and he came up just before he went on and I was a bit pissed. He came up just before he went on and went, oh, do you want to come on and do a verse in uh, in one of our songs? And I was like, yeah. He was like, well, do eight bars, st- stand side stage and I'll call you. And I was like, yeah, okay. And then I ran to find Dan Lassac and said, how much is eight bars? Because I don't know. And I just basically started doing the verse I wanted to do and he was like, stop there that's eight bars like cool perfect because again just clueless on that kind of thing i was like okay i'll go and do that and i know where to stop now that's why we're geniuses isn't it exactly (laughs) exactly are we not swamped down by analysis and and the technicalities um well when we were on that round table you were there promoting storage stories and i loved that book and 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 you've had many books over the years now. What was your kind of transition into into writing stories and and things like that? I always remember the the karaoke hustler story in there that just had me in absolute bits. Yeah, what was your route into writing these these odd little tales? It was. Uh, I mean, the, I mean, the boring story is that I I wrote the uh, wrote Carter. Memoir. I struggle with the word memoir because it's ridiculous, isn't it? My background also <laughs> makes me sound like I'm being pretentious yeah. using French word. Yeah. But uh, when I wrote, I wrote that uh, Carter autobiography, let's say. Yeah. And after I after I'd written that, and it was it was quite a sort of pleasurable thing to have a book out. So I think that made me want to write another one. And I had nothing else to say about myself, so I so I started writing a novel, and it just I mean it took years, and that that became storage stories. Yeah. So I don't think there was any massive desire to do it. You know, I just kind of stumbled in into it, like I tend to do with a lot of things, yeah. and that led to me writing more novels. And and uh, again, at a, a certain point a few years ago, I stopped doing that and went yeah. back to music. So yeah. I realised I can't do both at the same time. Right. I think oh, that's it's just just probably because of the wordy nature of my songs, maybe. Yeah. Because they're sort of quite wordy that I can't. I haven't got enough words in my in my head to sort of. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I love that. That it's like if, if if I'm doing both at the same time, this song will quickly become a novel, and then yeah. I've not got anything left for the song. <laughs> or one one of them, one of the art forms is going to suffer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I love it. Well, I want to kind of rewind all the way back and talk about everything, but but this is the point. I have a kind of an awkward confession that I missed Carter. I was I was, I was too y- y- young. My brother was a massive fan, but that. That period of Carter, of the Wonder Stuff, of EMF, was when I was at that age that I had shit tasted music and hadn't yet started stealing all my music tastes off my brother, which then came on and has continued. Everything I've ever been into since has come off my older brother. But it meant I missed that period. But it's kind of made me excited to talk about it with you because, you know, it, it's it's all quite fresh to me. But ahead of all of that, you said about your background. You grew up in, in South London, right? Yeah, yeah. And how was that kind of growing up? Like, all my all my family are from South London. That era, growing up in South London, kind of, I guess, end of punk fizzling out. What was, what, what was your life in that time? Well, I was there at the, I mean, punk 
wise, I was there at the beginning of the whole, you yeah. know, I was there for the whole thing. I was at school. I mean, before that, like, I was always into, I think when I was about 13 or 14, I got really into music. And a bit like you with your brother, it was my, I didn't have a brother, but my, my sister's boyfriends. I used to right. kind of like her music. So I got into, yeah. st- I mean, I, like I was really into Scar when I was nine. Yeah. I just remember being like nine. Amazing. And just because, you know, just sort of hanging out with these uh, sort of skinhead mates. I love and then it. her old her older boy, you know. Later on, I got into into heavy rock because her boyfriend's liked ACDC or something, you know. So it was all these sort of things. And then, then when I was at school, I sort of met people who also liked music, and that and I got into the music that they, they liked, which was you know. So I went through these sort of looking back on it, quite short periods of uh, really inte- in, intensely being into stuff. So like really madly into rock and roll for a short period of time, and being in a rock and roll, but you know, like playing Buddy Holly and uh, yeah. Elvis Presley and sort of Eddie Cochran songs. I love that though. I love the intensity at that age of you falling into um, like a genre, but also it was a pre-internet time because I've got the same. I've had a load of things where I was like, yeah, I was massively into metal at that point. I was like, oh no, I had three metal albums because that's all I could afford. And that was all my knowledge was of that. And and it's such a short period that when you think back, you'd think it's a long period of time. So I think like, well, I kind of liked... I kind of liked Queen then because I was really into like punk then. And I yeah. sort of, you know, I turned my back on all that. And you think, no, it's the same year, you know. Yeah. I still yeah, like yeah, 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 I yeah. still like Rod Stewart in the same year that um, I like the Sex Pistols. I have that with <laughs> with Oasis. It's like I had a sudden memory that I remember being on the train, train to school and listening to Oasis a lot. But at that period, I was into punk and, and, and slight kind of post-punk stuff. I was like, oh, no, ex- exactly as you say. I was like... I was into it for a couple of months yeah. <laughs> when the first album came out, yeah. and then and then I was against it all because I didn't. Yeah. I turned on the Britpop stuff because I was like, no, no, I'm into yeah. into this now. But yeah, yeah, it's mad the intensity of those moments. Yeah, I think it's probably when I, when I got into it's probably when I was like late teen, you know, like maybe yeah. seventeen, or that I really sort of started taking it more seriously and knew what I liked. The stuff that I liked sort of stuck with me. Well, you touched upon bands, though. You started getting in bands quite early, right? You and, and Fruit Bat. Like, yeah. You, did you meet at school and were straight off kind of, let's start making No, I was... Uh, uh, I mean, we li- we did sort of live relatively close. To, he's slightly older than me, but we lived sort of quite close to each other, but didn't didn't know each other. It wasn't until uh, I was in a band, I think, at the time. We were called The Ball Points. Right. I was, in, I was in a lot of bands that didn't do anything other than rehearse. Yeah. We just used yeah. to, and we went to this rehearsal studio in, in Streatham, in South London. It yeah. was kind of like a, it was a bit of a weird. Place. It was a lot of people just should hang hang out there, and it was really like a cool place to be and go to yeah. the pub together with everyone from the yeah. bands. And at, um, that, at that kind of age, being yeah. in a band is mainly coming up with a really good name. Yeah, oh yeah. Deciding who the band members are. Yeah. Not too much more than that is important, no. really. Make, make one badge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Draw up a potential album sleeve. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's got that's got all it. the titles for the first yeah, album. Exactly. But, but and, then, and then Les was just in one of the other bands, and yeah. he just ended up playing bass with my band and, and sort of followed on there, being with various different incarnations of bands, with me, me and him being the sort of two constant members just shredding other people <laughs> i love it just working th- th- through everyone so so when was it that that carter the unstoppable sex machine again you at that age you're coming up with good band names you came up with a cracker <laughs> um when was it that that became the the focus i guess we were in a band the first band that actually made records was jamie wednesday me and, mm-hmm. me and lezarin and uh it was that was kind of sort of run its course for us slightly we were we were sort of because we were quite uh um, we were sort of part of the 
that scene where the, the pokes and mendicant hang that kind of stuff, which mm-hmm. we were really really into at the time. And then we got like Les in particular, fruit that was was really into like um, LL Cool J and Public Enemy and yeah. stuff like that. So uh, and ACDC. So we, he was kind of the music we were making had nothing to do with the music he was making. And I was really into things like uh, Tom Waits and the band of Holy Joy, really basically lyricy sort of stuff. Yeah. So we, I think we decided to split the band up. But um, we went ahead with our, we had a gig, some uh, charity gig at the Astoria in London. Yeah. So we just went ahead with a gig and I think we told the promoter like the day before or something, uh, we split the band up. Can we go ahead and play with our new band? And that was like the first oh, wow. car. And we, t- we, we just kind of did it very quickly. So we had, um, we didn't have any other band members and we knew we wanted to use drum machine. And so we just recorded some backing tracks with like drums and bass and we wrote them really quickly and just, yeah. So it was one of those things. It was a sort of necessity. That we had to, I, we had a gig, I lo- and I love the speed of that. That you had a gig booked w- w- yeah. with the other band, and before it came about, you're like, "Well, that's not yeah. a thing anymore. Let, no. like, we're doing this now." Just honestly, it'll be, it'll work. I think, I think, I think we wrote the first songs in the first gig songs in probably like a week or something, and Brilliant. recorded them, and so you know, some of them stayed, some of them, some of them ended up being on records later on. Quite quickly, it felt like you got a good reputation as a live band, and just for gigs, like a good live following, a good. R- rowdy interactive kind of of, yeah. of fan base right yeah because we didn't have uh you know once we'd started making records we didn't we didn't get played on the radio for whatever reason yeah. we didn't even we didn't get that much press later on we did but at first we didn't really get any music press so we just just carried on just doing gigs and we got we got a manager quite early on he was he wasn't about he wasn't a band manager he just decided he wanted to manage us he worked on a on a flower stall and he was so uh with our sort of enthusiasm and, and lack of experience we just decided to do what we wanted to do which was just do lots and lots of gigs everywhere yeah. mostly avoiding london we decided not to play in london because because if we played in london we would just play to our friends and family yeah. so you know we'd, we'd rather play to you know seven strangers in bolton than yeah than 10 people we knew in london it's if mad that, i did <laughs> i did exactly that when I started off, I toured around the whole country living in a van and just for that exact reason, partly it was far scarier to me to play in front of people I know than to play in front of strangers. But also I'd seen so many local bands who got that local band syndrome of they play in front of their mates every week and they start to think they're huge or or they stop pushing as hard as they could because they think, "Oh, oh, we're brilliant. Everyone's telling us we're great. And then they go out of town and play to two people and yeah. and crumble. I, I was much more on the no. I want to start with that. I want to go out of town and play to these, you know, in random areas. Yeah. And uh, and I and think get, it was and uh, without sort of being patronising, condescending to people who don't live in London, it was kind of. A, I think it was appreciated. Yeah, yeah. That you would sort of, you know, what I mean, that you'd sort of make a bit of effort. And there was, and there's always that assumption that oh that oh, they must be big and successful if they're coming up this way kind of yeah. thing. I, I definitely had that, that I'd hardly played in London at all and I built a, a decent following in the rest of, of of the UK because I really worked hard on my live show. I had a, a, a polished live show. I had a little bit of some printed out CDs or whatever else. So people would assume, oh, he must be big down south. Yeah. Like, nah, no, I've never, no, no one down south knows I'm doing this. But yeah, it's a good little, uh, yeah. it's a good trick. <laughs> Yeah, and it kind of worked outside of you know outside the UK as well. We did, or not even just outside the UK, but playing in sort of unusual places. You know, playing a lot of, did a lot of gigs in uh, Eastern Europe and 
right, stuff like right. that. Pla- places where people weren't really to- going on tour, you know. Yeah. And, you know, the former Yugoslavia and stuff like that sort of. Yeah. Places where people didn't go as part of a tour because there wasn't a record market. That's what I think that's why people go places, isn't it, when they're in bands? Yeah. They're just yeah. promoting something. Where can we chart and so yeah. on and so forth? Yeah. I mean, speaking of promoting something, that era, and again, this is partly because of looking up at my brother and his mates and all these kind of things, it felt like a really big era for band T-shirts. I've definitely heard about you guys on T-shirts before before anything else, before I heard any music. And it's weird because it feels like that isn't as, as much of a thing anymore, other than metal bands. <laughs> metal from the beginning and, and until the end is always going to be about band t-shirts as well yeah. but yeah that felt like a, a a really good era for all of uh, of you guys of really getting these yeah these cool cool band t-shirts out and people really wearing it as their identity and uh yeah. and, and as a statement of their tastes and who they are so how yeah how was that oh I mean, it's great i mean at the time it was it was great because it was just you know it's how we paid to yeah put petrol in the car or whatever yeah. to get to the gig of course but um I, don't, I mean i don't really sort of remember it being such a big thing at the time i know it was you know but yeah. uh and we you know we had sort of a lot of battles with uh bootleg t-shirt yeah uh, people and stuff and also uh bigger companies that wanted to you know buy us out we yeah. sort of re- resisted that i mean i think the thing is that the good thing now is that it's still you know people want to still want to wear those shirts so they yeah. still so they rebuy them yeah. which is uh I mean, it's kind of what I, it's probably what I've lived off more than anything else in recent yeah. years. Not that, yeah. you know, not the music. Yeah. You know, don't make any money from the old records. Yeah. But do still make money from, uh, you know, the, the money that I'd make now from this, not, not, not that it's just about money, but the money I'd make from, say, 30-something shirts compared yeah. to the 30-something record mm-hmm. is, is probably insane, the difference between the two. Yeah, 100%. And I love the idea. I'll, I always remember me and... And, and Dan Lassac could stand out when we were doing gigs with other bands or like on a, a city festival or whatever, because similarly, we were a guy with a drum machine, a laptop and that kind of thing, and a vocalist. So our actual kit didn't take a lot of loading in, but no. our merch <laughs> was, was <laughs> yes. most of what yes. we were loading in. So all these yeah. other bands have got to get all their kit in, and we're like, uh, where do we put our boxes of merch? Because that's... Yeah. that's that's all that's actually in the back here and again yeah. it must have been similar with you guys at that period with yeah, a guitar and a drum machine and then a fuckload of boxes of t-shirts yeah. i think I, there were there probably was a moment out somewhere in there when we were quite successful where i probably would you know we'd start to have disagreements with our manager because we yeah. felt like he was more interested in selling shirts than he was, which wasn't true but but you know yeah. sometimes it feels like that well, what about this this new songs yeah yeah it's it's a funny one though because as you say from the manager point of view, particularly in this era, but equally back then, you're not making loads from from record sales. Obviously, the songs are the key part for building the fan base, but yeah. for being able to do this as your job, as working yeah. class people, you know things. It is, it, it is it's those other things. It's those yeah. add on bits that that you know your songs are what will get people through the door. But as you say, it's the T-shirts that are going to pay yeah. the petrol money and the hotel rooms and all those other bits. You know, now it's the sort of big thing again, isn't it, about people are sort of talking about the, uh, you know, venues taking a massive yeah. percentage of your T-shirt sales, not realising what a big deal that is. Yeah. They just Terrific, think, oh, well, you know, you're, we, we're giving you some space, so 
we'll charge you for it. Don't realise how they could effectively be saying, well, you can't play it, you can't play her anymore. Yeah, you know? I just about missed, m- missed most of that. Just at the point of stopping st- 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 touring was when they were starting to bring that in. And I was fuming because I ran the merch booth myself. We made all the merch ourselves, all that kind of thing. It's like... I could understand them getting a cut if they're putting a person to sell the stuff yeah. for us or whatever else. But it's like, no, this is all me. This is, I'll sell it from the van out the out the front if you're gonna if you're but gonna if, be a but, dick about but, it. But if they do supply a person, even that that could be worse, you know, because we've had that been on tours where they've so they supply a person, but you still have to take the person who's selling them at the gigs where they haven't got a person. So yeah. you've got someone who's doing nothing. Yeah, and the person yeah. they supply is so disinterested in the whole thing. Yeah, has never heard of the band because they're like fifteen years old or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and doesn't doesn't give a shit. Yeah, and then so it's kind of it's even worse if they do supply someone up. You know. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's just it's just irritating. I think it. I think all these things I find irritating. Like uh, these are things that do annoy me that aren't necessarily that important. <laughs> like dynamic. Let's go. Dynamic dynamic ticket pricing. You know that whole sort of thing that yeah. people charging. Uh, you know, treating it like an air, like an like a flight or something rather than a gig. And charging more if the tickets are in demand, that that kind of yeah, stuff. That's horrific. And but doesn't but, make any sense. But, to me. but the same as that and t-shirts sort of merch sort of uh, commission. I just think big, like the really big acts, could pretty much stop that, couldn't they? Yeah. But they obviously, don't, you know, I don't believe. So when you know people say, "Oh, it's not really up to Bruce Springsteen," or it's not up to One Direction or whatever yeah. to to decide how much their tickets are sold for, but that's just bollocks, isn't it? There's no way. It is. It's 100% of course they could say, no, we're all right, we're not doing it. Yeah. And and I completely understand the whole, well, depending on the act, it might be really expensive to put on the show. Like it's cheaper for me to go and play a pub than for Bruce Springsteen to to bring the fucking E Street band um, (laughs) and, and pay everyone well and things like that. But that's, can be part of the discussion. It shouldn't yeah. be just a, well, uh, let's not look at it because it's different, isn't it? Yeah. So, well, no, if it is it, different, then we yeah. can take that into account. But, no. you know, it should you, be, as, as you, you say, they're the ones who have the power to make yeah. to, to make change. Because I sort of moaned, I something I did moan about on Twitter recently about that, and uh, mm. people were sort of telling me, oh, it's not up to it's not up to the acts and that. But, that, but then uh, at the same time, uh, Paul Heaton was do, doing his gigs, and they're sort of like big, like he's doing the O2 and, that mm. stuff like that and they're uh, uh maximum 30 pound a ticket yeah all tickets yeah so if he can do it why can't somebody as massive as bruce springsteen do it because yeah. supposedly he has no power it just it's just yeah we we literally from early days we just told our booking agent that we want to keep our tickets yeah between 10 and 20 quid yeah and that was it that that that's how hard it was to take control yeah. and, and get that done. And we had that for our whole career. Well, you have that discussion. You know, they say, like, what are we going to charge? And then they suggest something or you suggest something. And yeah. you come to some agreement. Yeah. They don't say, oh, no, sorry. We're going to have to charge 500 quid ticket because it's nothing yeah, to do yeah, I'm with af- you. I'm afraid, I'm afraid <laughs> you've not got a say in this. Oh, no, yeah. I have. It's mine. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird one. Um, well, I mean, you touched upon when things got more successful. How was it when everything blew up because you guys got huge i remember my brother going off to see you headline either reading or a stage at glastonbury or or whatever else and as you say you were coming out of an era where a band is one or two guitarists a bassist a drummer someone singing and you were two blokes with a drum machine and a guitar and a lot to say 
how was that when that started to to blow up and you had to fill these stages and fill these um, expectations? There, there was definitely a, a moment. I don't know when it would have been, but uh, I don't think like John John Fat Beast. He used to he was kind of known for just for coming on and introducing us and people shouting "You fat right. bastard!" at him. But originally, yeah. when we when we first met him, he was uh, he did the lights at the Bull and Gate in Kentish Town. He also yeah. he promoted and he did the lights, and that's how we met him by doing gigs there. And uh, he was constantly saying that we needed to get a light, some sort of light show, even yeah. when we were playing sort of relatively small gigs. Um, and he just kind of muscled his way in and just did the lights. He he would just turn up, yeah, regardless of whether we wanted him to. So it was because of him we you know. So I think we did need a light show. It made a difference, right? Again, this is so weird. All all the parallels. Me and Dan Lasac were again a two piece. And it was only on our last tour that we got a lighting guy to come on tour with us. And I was fuming that we hadn't done it our whole career. Yeah. Because it was always that thing, oh, it's an expense that we can't really justify. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. We're touring out of a van, all this. But the difference it made to our live show on those bigger stages, on yeah. those, you know, one to 2,000 cap venues rather than the two, 300 cap venues. Yeah. That last tour we ever did was easily the best tour we ever did, yeah. and it was because we got a good lighting guy on board. And I yeah. love that you it's had someone who didn't who didn't really give you a choice. Just started coming, no, that, going, yeah. "I've got yeah, this covered, like lads." <laughs> yeah, it was everything we did was like that, really. Yeah, I think we had the the bloke who did it when we played. Uh, we played Wembley Arena with um, the Cure, and yeah, and it was quite a sort of big gig. And uh, we had somebody different did the lights. He was a friend of Jumbies. Uh, and he did the lights, and we, and then after the gig, I think it was in a bar somewhere. He said, "Do you know that's the first time I ever touched a lighting desk?" But he just sort of bullshitted his way into amazing. Pretend- <laughs> and now he does lights for like everyone, you know. Yeah, I mean, his first ever gig was at Wembley, so that's, yeah. that's not it's not a bad yeah. start. So yeah. I, I I love that. But have you got any um, favorite or worst memories from those days of? Big headline tours and f- big festival shows, and as you say, things like playing Wembley with the Cure for fuck's sake and st- yeah. stuff like that. What comes to mind when you think back at all? all I think that? I think most of the sort of the gigs that were like uh, when we were kind of on the way up. So like when we played Wembley with the Cure, we were on the way up. When we sort of went on second to top of the bill at Reading, yeah, it, it felt like everybody loved us at the time. Yeah, and uh, and then sort of so probably like a year later or something, it, we we kind of peaked. It was uh, so. I didn't think it at the time, but presumably the next. You know, there's only one way to go after that, isn't it? You either become yeah. well, two ways. Yeah. You become bigger, or you go back down again. So, so I think so. Like by the time we so we headlined Glastonbury, you know, which some yeah. people can't believe, but we we headlined Glastonbury. But I do remember. Amazing, I, man. But by that point, I wasn't. It wasn't so enjoyable because uh, I just, I've sort of got this memory of I mean, apart from the fact we were uh, ejected from the site by. Michael Evis, just for complaining about everything. But um, oh, really, yeah, how can uh, you eject the headliners for complaining? Uh, on that? I don't. I mean, it was because we because because the whole thing overran because mm-hmm. we were on last. We we had to cut our set, and it was a real yeah. sort of, so we ended up in a big row about that. And then they let Fruitback go back on just to just to let everyone know. Sorry, we couldn't. We had to leave it, you know, because of curfew and all that. But he went on and he just slagged off the whole festival for. Not letting the travellers in, and all this kind of stuff. so then, so then they came back to the sort of portal cabin and asked us to leave. Amazing! What <laughs> so, a, what but, a way but, to go out. But the other thing, I, absolutely, yeah. But the other thing I remember was that 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 
it's a sort of vague memory, but I had this memory of looking out at this massive crowd and being aware that not everybody likes us. Do you know what I mean? Where, right. Whereas at Reading a year before, it felt like everybody here thinks we're the best band in the world. Uh, you know, obviously that's a bit delusional, but, but at Glastonbury, I was sort of very aware that, well, you know, those 20,000 people over there <laughs> absolutely hate us yeah. or are disinterested. So everything from that point, maybe, you know, you're sort of less... Yeah, success is a weird sort of thing, isn't it? When you sort of, yeah, proper it, success. It, it, it really can be. Early on on the podcast, I had Billy Bragg on and he spoke about the amount of people he knows who have had real struggles with their mental health because they've achieved their dream, their childhood dream. Yeah. And they've kind of felt, all right, well, there we go then. Like, yeah. what now? And it didn't It didn't give them the, the fulfilment. Billy says he's lucky because it has given him that. He's kind of, yeah. each time he is like, this is amazing. I can't believe I get to do this. But it's a mad one. It must be really odd. Because as I said, in that era in particular, I mean, all eras, headlining Glastonbury is the absolute peak of the music <laughs> industry, really. So to have done that and have those feelings, it must have been a really odd yeah. Odd anticlimax, I guess. It's Again, a, I'm sure amazing as well, but an odd anticlimax oh, yeah. to go, oh, wow, that was it then. Yeah. Because I'm sort of like annoyed at myself that I feel like that in a way, or that yeah. I felt like that. Yeah. Because it was the same when we had a number one album. That was I remember that being yeah. not disappointing, but not, not as great as it should be. Because it was yeah. like a, almost because it was a foregone conclusion, because, you know, the record label were telling us it's going to be number one. and Yeah. And they sort of worked out, how you know, how it was going to be number one and that. Whereas before, you and know, they ruined the surprise. Yeah, before everything was like I remember, like getting get, getting in the indie charts or whatever with a yeah with a single or an album, just sort of blew my mind at first. You know, it's 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 mad how unrelenting the industry is, isn't it? Because no matter how positively you come in, I think it's quite quick that the way the industry is built, it's quite quick to make you think oh, we've got in the chart, but who's above us this time? Oh, yeah. And where should we have got? And, yeah. and where did we chart l- last time? And even if you're number one, but how many did the last person who was number one sell? And, yeah. and where's the singles of this album yeah. charted and things like that? Which is horrible, because as you say, early days, I was like, I've got a record in HMV. Yeah. Like, I worked oh, yeah. in HMV for years. For me, it was <laughs> like, I'd, I'd walk into HMVs genuinely just, j- just look at it. I'd go in and go to our section and go, They've printed out a fucking header card and everything. <laughs> this is mad. But then I said, a second album. I'm I'm looking at, have we got Radio 1 playlist again? Have we got this? Have we got that? Yeah. And it's ugly, man. It's so hard yeah. to avoid because it becomes a job. It becomes an industry rather yeah. than a passion. Later on, like much later on, like now, you sort of realise that there's a better way of doing things. Yeah, yeah. But even that's not necessarily good enough. But you you sort of, yeah, you kind of realise that, I don't know, some of those things aren't as important as they seem at the time, maybe. I, I tell this story all the time, but with when I had a, a record label, I've kind of wrapped it up now, but we would always celebrate a new release when the artwork was submitted. So, so the artwork and the music has been submitted, it's going yeah. up to press. That was when we celebrate, rather than when it came out or when it did whatever it did in the charts or whatever else. Like, no, let's we've done this. That is the point to go. Yeah, fucking hell, we've got a we've done we've got a record here, and I think that's the yeah. way to do it, man. Because everything then, else becomes n- nonsense and yeah. distracted and comparative to other people, and or ever, or then everything else is like cherries and sprinkles. Yeah, and completely. It's 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 all a bonus. I remember 
when we put this album out by a guy, Giacomo Brown, it was so uncommercial and he he, he doesn't play live, doesn't do, do interviews, anything. I remember when we got a good review in Uncut and a good review on Six Music, in fact. It was on one of the, the, the round table shows and they spoke <laughs> nicely of it. It was like, oh shit, we were kind yeah. of expecting that, well, at least it's out. At least it got <laughs> at least it got released. So to get good responses was exactly that. It was a huge ch- cherry on top. So yeah, definitely the way to go. Well, I mean, speaking of the kind of things that come with <laughs> coverage or fame or success, two things I want to talk about. I want to talk about legal battles with the the Rolling Stones yeah. and physical battles with Philip Schofield. So how how was that to suddenly find yourselves? On the on the kind of the music side of it, having a band as big as the Rolling Stones with legal teams as big as the Rolling Stones, g- yeah. going, oi, that's our lyric, or that's our in a in a part that references, yeah. you know, something from them. How was that period f- for you guys? I think I mean because that was the, all that a lot of that stuff happened in a very sort of in a sort of intense period of time, and I, yeah. which was pretty much when we signed to a major label. Which was when they started asking permission for because for the first say, the first two albums, people are looking. yeah the first two <laughs> albums are full of like there's you know we sampled Elvis Bowie you know just all this yeah. stuff never no one ever noticed so yeah. <laughs> but as soon as we said oh that yeah we'll have to ask permission as soon as on, you ask permission on, <laughs> on my first album I sampled or ripped off a whole bit of a Kate Bush song and on the album that I put out with with cooking vinyl that was a proper album i covered that same kate bush song and gave her a hundred percent like got clearance and gave her a hundred percent and i never really told him i was like that was kind of to make up for the fact that i'd stolen it in my youth when i didn't know anything about it so well i'll cover it officially now yeah and and you can have all of the because <laughs> with, um, with the rolling stones thing that was because we did the uh goodbye ruby tuesday line from yeah was that was because at the time that was my favorite Rolling Stones record. Yeah. So it was done from a sort of fan's point yeah. of view, really, yeah. putting it in there. I didn't put it in there because I hated the Rolling Stones. And then yeah, it was a sort of weird thing because we, we were being sued by by their publishing company more than by the Rolling Stones. Yeah, of course. So I think the only disappointing time was when Mick Jagger was asked about it in an interview and he, he started talking about you can't uh, let people set precedents or something. Like, I, I found that a dis- bit disappointing. In a yeah, way, so you know, a bit he, industry. Yeah, he could have sort of because because there was a David Bowie. There was a thing with a sort of somebody had discovered that we'd used a David Bowie sample, mm. um, Suffragette City, years before, and uh, there's the company wanted to do something about, it, and David Bowie stepped in and said, "No, just doesn't matter." Kind of you right. Know, so that, that's amazing. So that's what he could have. So Mick Jagger could have said, but I mean, you know, he could have said it's nothing to do with me, which was yeah. true. Yeah. But yeah, it was. It did. We did. So, so we thought, oh yeah, we're going to win this battle. And then it was only when our lawyer said, you know, you'll never win this battle because they're so, because this company has so got so much money. Yeah. That, that we could, you know, we could go to court, but we would have to have, you know, we'd have to put hundreds of thousands of pounds. Yeah. For this stupid sort of battle. So we just dealt with it the way we dealt with all things was just with sarcasm. So I think we, so we sort of agreed agreed to. Uh, I think it got the single got deleted or whatever they call it. And uh, yeah, we did like the videos came out and the, like a collection of our promo videos. And that one we after the watershed was renamed after the court case. And there's no uh, there's no audio on it. It's just pictures. So it's right. just that sort Amazing. of childish reaction to it. 
Yeah, but uh, that's perfect. Yeah. I was going to say Philip Schofield thing was that was for that record, so all these things were happening. So it obviously yeah. seemed a bit insane at the time. Was he skipping a queue, and you guys were just ahead of the t- time and saw him for what he is as as he's had all the drama now? <laughs> I t- I don't know. I mean, I t- to be honest with you, I don't have a massive problem with him mainly because I don't watch this morning. So. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't, and you know, and he was kind of in years after he was quite sort of nice about it. He yeah. wasn't sort, of, you know. So, uh, um, and I've basically seen basically f- fruit bat rugby tackled him at the smash hit. Awards, yeah, right? yeah. Is that the? I mean, yeah. It's basically story. yeah. I mean, they, people say rugby tackle. I mean, I think really, if you watch it, if you actually watch the video yeah. clip, I think it's that it's actually pretty horrible. It's like quite. It's violent. It's not. There's a lot of anger from yeah. fruit, but he doesn't sort of run on and hilariously rugby rugby tackle. It's more like he's coming and he's tried to kill him. That's yeah. I think, <laughs> you know, not kill him, but you know, he's not. He's properly angry. Yeah, he's not just doing it for a jape. Yeah, yeah, because I didn't at the time. I didn't think it was funny at all. Well, I, I didn't see it because I'd already stormed off the stage. Right. So, uh, but that was part. I think that was part of us that whole day and that us sort of feeling like we were betraying our kind of our sort of roots or whatever, or we were selling out. That's what it felt yeah. like, you know, the whole sort of, it was very uh, all two show business for us, the whole event. It's weird, isn't it, on those things? And again, it plays into getting caught up in the industry and things uh, I like that because I think there's been so many instances over the years of bands playing at that kind of thing, but wanting to prove that they're not the kind of people to play yeah, at that kind yeah, of thing. And it's like, yeah. w- with the greatest respect here, it's like, well, don't play it then, kind yeah. of thing. And it is, it's that weird thing of if you find yourself in that situation, then yeah. you're like, well, what do we do? I think, that was, I think that was the way, it was possibly what it was the most annoying thing about it at the time was that, that people said that we sort of deliberately set it up, that we planned yeah. on doing it, yeah. as opposed to, you know, Fruitback just being really drunk and just lost his temper, <laughs> you know, which yeah. is, it was in no way planned. And, you know, yeah. as you say, we wouldn't have, you know, we did turn things down. We wouldn't, have, so we would have just not done it. Yeah. We were kind yeah. of, you get talked into things by record labels and you to, you know, this, you've got to do this. And uh, if they hadn't done all the, you know, because we, we had stupid things like we, we, we would sort of insist on, okay, we'll do it, but you mustn't fade the song down because it makes us look stupid because we're miming, because we hate yeah. mi- Hated looking. Don't mind miming, but when it, when you're really obviously miming, yeah. it's a bit sort of. And then all they just faded it down really quickly. Yeah. Just sort of. So uh, that's that's why he. So that yeah. was why he was initially annoyed. So he kicked a couple of things over, and then then Philip Schofield made a sarcastic comment, and that sort of tipped him over the. Yeah. But if they hadn't have faded it down, Philip Schofield wouldn't have had to say something sarcastic, and none of it would have happened. But. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, well. I- Another thing I wanted to, t- to talk about because it, um, again, it's a memory I have of my brother and his mates all being into it at the time, and it's something I relate to is 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 covers because w- w- when we used to tour, we'd always have a different cover song on each tour because I was just a music fan who couldn't believe I was getting to do this, and I know probably most of the fans had no desire to see me cover the specials or cover Prince or, or cover the sh- sh- Sugar Babes on one tour. But it was exciting for me to because these are songs I love. You guys used to have covers as B-sides and stuff a lot. Yeah. What kind of inspired that? Was that part of you kind of going, looking back at you, as you say, your kind of eclectic music taste growing up yeah. and the different areas you got into? What drew you to to do covers regularly? I think, I mean, part of it, 
in terms of recording with them, it was part of it was was for fun because we didn't, you know, there was it took, there was no pressure to 100%. to write lyrics or anything, you know. Yeah. So we were just let's just do someone else's song, and also kind of showing, you know, our influences, as you say, you know. So we if we do a Pet Shop Boys song, it's because we love the Pet Shop Boys, not because yeah. we're taking the piss out of the Pet Shop Boys, but maybe it's unexpected, even though similarities was, were obvious to me yeah or uh those sort of things or you know we did a soft sale song because we love soft sale i love it's that so, and yeah. I, I i completely relate because the, 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 there is anytime you're doing music that's kind of unusual for, for for the time and that time it was kind of you know is very different you assume all your influences will come across but they don't always so it is kind of nice to go yeah. oh no like I'll, i always remember when our first single came out it was called Thou Shall Always Kill, and it, it got in the charts, and it was a big surprise. And it was all lovely, but what was r- really l- lovely was any time punks were into it, because yeah. I grew up into <laughs> punk, and I felt this was so far from punk, but I grew up, punk was my biggest influence. So anytime punks were into it and were like, yeah, it's got the vibe of this, although it's electronic, although it's this and that, it meant the world to me anytime it was it was punks enjoying it because like yeah that's yeah. that's in there somewhere it's somewhere yeah. in my dna and that and that's come across so yeah and also we, i think of something we did because we did a cover of the impossible dream yeah. which might seem like an unusual song but that's yeah. a song that me and les used we used to do that busking in croydon oh um, wow you know to sort of so you know we were really into show tunes like songs yeah. from mu- songs from musicals was something that we sort of loved and that and i think you know i can hear that in some of the carter stuff yeah you know they're always always wanting to have an orchestra but never being able to afford one or whatever so like yeah using synthesizers to kind of create that sort of similar massive over the top thing completely it's it it's the beauty of it ian mckay of of minor threat and fugazi and all that always used to say i always remember reading the quote of his and saying i'd much rather hear four guys that have such huge ambitions of what they want to get across but don't necessarily have the technical skill or the yeah. orchestras or whatever than someone who's got access to everything and all yeah. of this that can just do what they want. It's like, no, it's that. It's what's bursting to get out through the yeah. means that they have is what makes yeah. it exciting. And, yeah, that 100% comes across yeah. in Carter's stuff. Yeah, yeah, we were, yeah, we were rubbish basically. But <laughs> <laughs> was, so, I mean, you spoke about the kind of feeling after headlining Glastonbury; it was all downhill from there. When did it come to an end? What was when, where, why? What was the kind of journey to go in? You know what? This ain't happening anymore. I think well, after we, uh, there was a point where we got a drummer, which sort of changed everything, obviously. And then we sort of, you know, we made an album. As as a three piece, and it was so already we sounded different. We didn't sound yeah, like this. We didn't sound like the same band at all. So I don't know. Maybe commercially that was a mistake. Commercially, but it felt like the right thing to do at the time. And then uh, that led to us being a six piece by the end. You know, because mm. we just sort of started just picking up other members because we found that it was. Uh, I think we were basically bored with maybe bored with the drum machine and that. Yeah, and uh, so we were probably sort of around that. Whenever that would have been, like the past couple of years, the last two years of Carter were probably less, I was probably less excited about the whole thing. Yeah. So we just kept changing stuff. And then the gigs were just getting, they get emptier and smaller. And I find found that sort of incredibly depressing. Yeah. Just, just, uh, and then doing stuff, you know, just, just, just doing, you know, before we always just did pretty much what we wanted to do and no compromise and it all just seemed to work. Whereas, 
then it was you know the past few, last few years were just all compromise you yeah. know and just sort of doing uh had like a massive tax bill so we had to do gigs at uh, universities university balls at sort of two o'clock yeah. in the morning playing to drunk judges or whatever yeah that kind of thing so everything was just it was just less fun and again you've got it all the wrong way round that you're adding band members when the num when the crowds are going down that's just going to cost you more <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so there's that, yeah. Climbing, you know? yeah and then and then sort of and then you end up in a but i think we ended up when they were you know we did that thing that everybody does at the end of well, not everybody a lot of people do at the end of that just let's go to america for a long tour yeah, yeah and then and then everyone just really falls out in yeah. america yeah um been there <laughs> yeah <laughs> so maybe that's just the Maybe that's the way things are supposed to happen. Yeah. But uh, I think because there were as I, there were six of us and uh, most of those people were having a really good time because mm. it was new to them and they'd just been brought in for... They were, so they were essentially on holiday, whereas yeah. I was sort of, you know... Yeah, I wasn't on holiday. I was on the opposite of a holiday. Yeah. And I was paying for the holiday. That was the worst thing. <laughs> you, know, that's, you know, I paid for the tour bus because Fruit yeah. Bat spent all his money. I was sort of more. I was a bit more careful with money, so so I I ended up paying. So I was paying the tax bills for both of yeah. us. Yeah, wow. And then I was hiring the tour bus so that everyone could have a holiday in America while I was yeah. like miserable. <laughs> yeah, so just, and that's yeah. gonna that's that was always going to be impossible to enjoy, right? Yeah, because because you know the cost at which it comes, the, the literal yeah. the, the 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 financial cost and the mental cost and all this yeah. that, yeah. And I think just because I was quite, uh, I'm not very good at uh, confrontation of any sort of type. So I just never had the courage to tell everyone, you know. Yeah. If, if I was Neil Young or something, I just would, I just would have walked off or just yeah. sacked sacked everybody. Just <laughs> emailed them and said, "Yeah, sorry, you're all sacked." So yeah. yeah, so it just took me a long time to pluck up the courage to to say I don't want to do this anymore, you know. And then of course yeah. everyone's like, "What? <laughs> Why?" Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. It's mad how. In, in those situations, again, it's so weird. I, the one American tour that we did, I wrote out a resignation letter. I never okay. ended up sending it, and and we ended up doing tours after that, and it was much better, and things got better. But that period, it's mad how you can be with people so much, but communication can break yeah. down so much. So everything that's been going on in your head, yeah. The, the other five people weren't aware of. So when yeah. you do turn around and go, it's over, in your mind, it's inevitable. Everyone yeah. knew this was coming. But to a lot of them, it's a genuine shock. And what? I thought we oh. Yeah. The, the only time I'm ever sort of brutally honest, too, probably too honest, is on stage when I sort of get, yeah. get a bit carried away. And I do remember at those, those American gigs, I would say things during the gig to the audience yeah. that pretty much was, you know, I'd say, well, you know, this is the last time we'll ever play this, that, that, that sort of thing. But no one noticed. Yeah. No one in the band yeah. noticed. Yeah. I was just, I'm just telling everyone. Yeah, I'm split. We're splitting the band up at the end of this. Yeah, but yeah. So, but people didn't tend to notice. I don't know. I mean, I kind of want to. We're we're up to an hour now, so I don't want to take up up your whole day. But when did your feelings towards it all change? Because you kind of, you guys had have had numerous a, a reunion shows and events yeah. and tours and, and and things like that and it feels like it kind of happened at a point when you just had to get comfortable with everything and maybe l l let go of certain things that had, yeah. had, had had plagued you for a while and it feels like you just need to get in a better a place so kind of how was the kind of the getting back together the the giving it back to the crowd again so it would have been like 
10 years, I suppose, between last yeah. gig and, and reunion. So just I, as soon as we split, as soon as the band split up, I was like, personally, I was doing solo stuff or trying to do yeah. solo stuff immediately. So all the things that I'd wanted to do yeah. probably for a year before, I just went straight into. So tried various things and did various solo albums, you know, pretty much all of them commercially, everything unsuccessful, I'd say, you know, <laughs> and uh, if you compared, especially compared to what had gone before. And then th- some things that were kind of did quite well and did do some fairly decent sort of solo gigs. But there was always that thing, there was always that people would, would always ask, you know, whether it be promoters or, or fans or whatever, always asking, you know, why didn't you get the band together? Yeah, And uh, it's something that we always said no to. And then I think maybe there was a point where Fruitback wanted to do it or was up for doing it, but I was just... I just say more and more. If I was ever asked in interviews, or whatever, I always used to say more and more stupid things. You know, like I'd rather, I'd rather cut my own legs off. And that kind of, you know, just sort of, yeah, 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 as a sort of get out. But I think always at the back of my mind, I knew that no one was really offering any sort of decent. Yeah. No one was offering a lot of money or anything like that. So it wasn't yeah, really, yeah. wasn't really a sort of a big deal to say no. We're never going to do it. But then, uh, so it was whatever year that was, two thousand and seven or the uh, singer from Mega City Four band, Mega City Four died mm-hmm. and uh somebody organized a gig where all all the sort of bands from that era like census things and therapy and I can't remember yeah. else is on um would would do like four songs for whiz and it was called four for whiz and we just and they wanted me and les to get back together and uh just to do some do it acoustically uh, just do some acoustic yeah. art songs and we were still friends and that we sort of uh, so that so we were going to do that. Actually, I, I mean, at the time, I was doing some Carter songs as a solo thing, and I thought Les will say no, and I'll just yep. do it on my own. This will be easy. I'll just turn up and do four yeah. songs. But he said, "No, let's do it." But I don't want to do it acoustic. So I was like, "Oh, fucking hell, you're joking." So, uh, <laughs> so I kind of got talked into doing it by by Les, and it. so we ended up doing four, four songs with. I think we had an MP3 player at this point, so it's yeah. off, <laughs> which didn't which didn't work. And we did four songs, and it was the, just the reception to it. Um, I can't remember where it was. The I think it was the Islington Academy or something like that. Right. Actually, I, yeah. I've forgotten where the gig was. But, yeah, the reception from the audience was just so insane to us coming on and doing four songs. Yeah. That uh, that kind of led on to some promoters suggesting it seriously. And then it, because our, my manager, Mark, is... Um, He's now sort of Carter's manager as well, but he's and he he sells all the he now sells all the t-shirts for all those bands you mentioned earlier. He's yep. the mastermind behind, behind that. Brilliant. He, but he's the he's the king of the bullshitters. He's just yeah. an insane, I don't know, marketing genius in just that he would. So he he lied to us about uh, Live Nation offering right. a, offering us a certain amount of money to do uh, Brixton Academy, and uh, it wasn't strictly true. They'd offered us like money if we sold it out but he told us it was guaranteed so anyway that's the sort of boring side of it so we ended up we got talked into doing that and over to glasgow barrowlands yeah and i think because we did it i mean there's a lot of things involved in doing two gigs there's quite a lot involved isn't you that you wouldn't you know just finding somebody to do the sound and the lights and stuff like that because everyone's everyone's, particularly after so long off yeah because they're all busy doing other stuff so all that was sort of difficult, and then rehearsing was sort of was really weird, um, unusual because we hadn't sort of rehearsed together on our own sort of. But then once we'd done it, we realised oh, you know we really enjoyed it, and wouldn't it be good to do it again? Yeah. And then we sort of fell into this thing of doing it, did it either once every year or once every other year, but just doing yeah. two gigs. Yeah. And sort of uh, yeah, and you know 
financially it was fine. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie about that. I wouldn't have done <laughs> yeah. it. I wouldn't have done it for nothing. But uh, yeah, but it was kind of and they were quite joyous events. Everybody who went there knew what was going to happen. Yeah. There wasn't there weren't going to be any new songs. Yeah. They were going to hear the old songs played as as they were played at the time. Sometimes with the same tapes. Yeah, I think the, wow. the first like there's definitely. There's two songs, no, yeah, one or two songs that we played at the very first gig, that gig when we didn't really exist, yeah. that we used the same cassette tape. Wow. At the last ever gig, we were still, we, we, we put it onto DAT or something or onto whatever we were using then, but it still had all yeah. the hiss because it was still the same. <laughs> I so, love that. Know. But That's yeah, beautiful. I think it's just that thing. It was an enjoy, it was a great, you know, celebratory thing, events to be at. And then maybe there it, Again, there came a point where we thought, oh, this can't just keep doing this forever. Yeah. So we had to sort of uh, stop. Yeah. I love that, though. So so tell me about where you are now. What are you? What have you been working on in the studio? Or what's going on, basically? Well, after, because I did the, I did for quite a while, I just concentrated on, on books and yeah. did the, uh, however many, six novels or something. And uh, and I did, I wasn't writing songs at all. I didn't write a song for about seven years, I think. And then I, I started right for some reason. I can't remember why. I wrote. I wrote some songs. I want to say no. It was pre-COVID, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I, I wrote some songs and then I, uh, I I recorded them with a band. I don't know if I were remembering this right. But um, basically, I did a gig. Me and my manager Mark, who's you know, who's like we we both sort of get over ambitious ideas, and we went to see. Uh, I think I just I played the Hundred Club and sold it out. Yeah, and that was sort of biggest gig i'd done around that time i suppose in london um and then we went to see con robust at london palladium yeah and we were sitting there waiting for him to come on and i and i just said to him do you, think, do you think i could play here and we just sort of started talking about that and that led to us uh convincing a promoter to put me on at shepherd's bush empire amazing even though and it was totally stupid but and uh and sold it out so wow so that sort of uh so then just I'm trying to remember all this, how these things happen. So then went back to Shepherd's Bush Empire like again after that, but this time brought on like a a band for some of the songs. A band of people who I knew who, um, who played with a friend of mine, Chris Chris TT. I don't know if you know Chris TT. Uh, so it was his band basically. And then as a res- this is the most boring long answer ever. But basically, yeah. as a result of playing with this band, I wanted to record with the with a band. So I ended yeah. up writing some songs and then ended up. So now I'm on the third album with them. But the, the last two, because the last two, I think one of them was number twenty six in the chart. So it was, you know, it was they, they they did well. So yeah, so it's kind of all kicked off again. So the the one I'm worked, yes, I've been recording a new album with them. Which everybody says this, I'm sure, but genuinely, it's the first time I've ever thought that this is the best album I've ever done. <laughs> that sort of, I genuinely yeah. do. I've I've yeah. kidded myself in the past. I've I've said that, and, but knowing no, it's not really. But I genuinely think it is. So. So it will be a shame when it doesn't do as well as it should do. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. Now it's going to be the the, the most unsuccessful, yeah. most poorest. That is the that is the thing. You know, so if I could stop now, knowing that I think that that would probably be a good time to stop. Yeah, you know, rather than I know that when it will come out, I'll be like, oh no, six music don't want to play it. It's it's Cause... one of the reasons I stopped when I did because mine and Dan Lasak's last album was the one I was m- I was most proud of artistically. It did well commercially, and I was like, "Cool, let's leave it there." Like like like, like, it, like it's not like it got <laughs> to t- number one in the charts or anything, but it did well. We did good tours, and I was like, "All right, it's balanced. Like we've found we've finally got there, and I'm happy with that. Let's uh, yeah. let's r- run off into the sunset and not and not r- ruin it." <laughs> well, that's probably the, that's probably the best thing you could have done. I think so. I think so. Well, 
Mate, I appreciate you coming on and having a chat. It's been an absolute joy and it's f- flown by. So, yeah, thank you for coming in. It's good and to see you. We should, we should meet up every, every 10 years. Yeah, 100%. 100%. We'll get another catch up. We'll see if, um, if you've had any, any, any joys or, or, or letdowns in the next 10 years and where it all lands. Yeah, if I'm still alive in 10 years. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you for taking the time, mate. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Jim Bob of, amongst other things, Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine. I'll be back next week with more wonderful chat. Uh, a little reminder, ev- almost everything at speechdevelopmentrecords.com is 27% off at the moment. So go and fill your boots there if you fancy it. But... um don't spend money you've not got (laughs) as said none of my merch is essential or important i mean it's dope but it's not essential or important so um yeah i hope you're all well and holding up okay in these strange times um until next week stay safe and stay sane ta-ta